God's kingdom is forever. Let's hear the word of the Lord as he speaks to us this morning. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and he was the one who sold all to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them as strangers and spoke roughly with them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. But they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Joseph said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we pray that the meditations of our hearts, the words of my mouth, might be a pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our deliverer. Amen. Please be seated, and if you would, grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis 42. Also, if you're a parent here and uh, you have some children, we have uh, in the back some activity boxes that might help uh, shape things along. Feel free to go back there, grab those, as well as a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have those in the back as well. So if you'll grab those, and we'll look at uh, Genesis 42, Genesis 42, picking it up again in verse 12, reading on through, through verse 28. Joseph said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And the brothers said, we, are, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined while you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in which we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we would not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. When Joseph returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder in the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. 
And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back here. There is my money in my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? For quite a long time, I was convinced that my mother really didn't know what was going on. Because every time I did something stupid or every time I did something bad, especially when I did it right in front of her, she would always say to me, what did you just do? And I think to myself, you you were standing right there. You saw what I just did. But she nevertheless would say, what did you just do? Why did you just do that? You know, that kind of thing. The opening chapters of the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, do an amazing job of depicting not just the creation of the world, but the God who created the world. We walk away from those opening chapters, and if you don't, you're misreading them. You walk away from those opening chapters just overwhelmed with the grace, overwhelmed, sorry, with the sovereignty, with the power, with the authority, with everything that is glorious and wonderful about our God. You walk away from those opening two chapters realizing that God is the mighty one, that he is the dominant one, that he knows all things. And so in chapter 3, when you get to that spot where Adam and Eve sin against the Lord and they are hiding from him, it's kind of surprising when his opening question to them is, Adam, where are you? And you sit and you think, surely a God who creates the whole world would be able to find Adam hiding behind a tree. And yet he says, Adam, where are you? Now, he's not asking because he doesn't know where Adam is. My mother isn't asking because she didn't see me do that stupid thing. They're asking for an entirely different reason. We pick up in Genesis 42 here the story of how God is redeeming his people through the book of Genesis, that indication that the Savior is coming who will not just save the people of Israel, but ultimately will be a blessing to the entire world. That's the promise that has been carried forward from person to person, from generation to generation, down through the book of Genesis. And we know that Jesus is modeled here by Joseph. What Joseph is doing gives us insight into how Jesus himself is going to act to save his people. And so we have the tragedy of Joseph being thrown into a pit, being sold as a slave into Egypt, and then eventually being in prison and going from prison to being the second most powerful person in the land. And Joseph was responsible for all things that took place, all the distribution of the food, because we have this powerful famine that has hit not just Egypt, but has hit that whole area, including Canaan land. Now, Egypt and Canaan land are separated by about 100 miles, and you have to think of 100 miles not being traveled, obviously, with uh, cars, but traveled through a massive desert, etc., on camels and in donkeys and those kind of things. So that 100 miles is quite a separation, but the famine is so severe that the Israelite people who dwell in Canaan land can't find food. Now they hear that there's food down in Egypt, and so the, 12 bro- the, the 10 brothers of uh, sons of Jacob, the, those guys that we were following for a while who uh, abused Joseph as we knew, saw, threw him into a pit, and then sold him into slavery, wanted to kill him, those tw- 10 sons go down to Egypt in order to buy food. 
traveling 100 plus miles in order to get there over rough country. They come to buy food and they find themselves before who? Of all people, Joseph himself. Now, if you go all the way back to chapter 37, you'll remember that Joseph had these dreams, and he told his brothers about these dreams. Hey, one day all of you guys will bow down before me. Of course, that went over as you would expect it would. You know, they all hated him for saying those kind of things, and yet here it is, they are indeed bowing down before him. And he asked, and and the text is explicit about this. It says it in two different spots, by the way, so it doesn't want you to miss this. Joseph recognized them. Now, 15, 20 years have passed, so it's easy to believe that they wouldn't recognize him. He would have been a late teenager, you know, he's in his 30s, whatever, at this point in the game. So it's easy to believe that they wouldn't recognize this ragtag kid that they sold into slavery, now dressed in the finery of, the, of an official of, of Pharaoh, you know, high-powered in Egypt. But he recognizes them. And yet he asks them, think about this, where do you come from? Where do you come from? Verse 7. Now, this is a fairly straightforward question, but Joseph knows exactly who they are. Why does he ask the question? Why did my mother, when she saw me do the thing, why did she ask me what I had done? Why does God say, Adam, where are you? When God knows clearly where Adam is. Because the point is not simply to tell me where I'm from, to show yourself where you are, to explain what you did to your mother. It is because my mother desired above all else a relationship with me. God desired above all else a relationship with Adam. Joseph desires above all else a relationship with his brothers. And so he initiates a conversation that is intended. God, my mother did. God does with Adam. Joseph does with his brothers. That is intended to lead to a, a sight of the world, a picture of the world, as God himself portrays it. So that the brothers would gather together and say, look at what our God has done. Way back in chapter 37, God told us that this was coming, that this was how he was going to save the world. He was going to bring a Savior into the world, and that, Joseph, you were going to model that Savior for us. And here it is, all these years later, and we would die without the food that you can provide for us. And so they're over, they, the, the joy, the, uh, you would hope that that would come about, but instead... The answer to the question, where are you from, is answered from a perspective not of the grace and the grandeur and the work of God, but from their own narrow, sinful perspective. Joseph invites, God invites, every one of you here in this room to see the world from his viewpoint, to see the world as the world really is. And sin, not that bad thing that you do every once in a while when you lose your temper or when you gossip with somebody or when you think bad thoughts, but sin, that power that grabs your heart, that power that draws us away from the Lord, sin narrows our field consistently so we don't see the world 
the way God wants it to be seen. And this is so clear in the way in which the brothers react to that general question, where are you from? Where the brothers see themselves, what they think of themselves is completely trapped by the narrowness of their vision. They cannot see the world the way God wants them to see the world. You can see this again in the text. If you look in the passage in the beginning, we have the brothers appear before Joseph, and of course they're on their knees before him. They bow down before him, exactly as what was anticipated in the dreams that came beforehand. And Joseph recognizes them, but he spoke, he treated them as strangers and spoke roughly with them in verse 7. He treats them with strangers and then says, What? Now, why doesn't he just say, Hey guys, look at who I am? I don't know. Is there a possibility that he's just playing games with them? Is it a possibility that he's rubbing it in a little bit, that, uh, look, you guys abused me and those kind of things? I, I suppose we're not really told Joseph's motives here, but I think when you look at the rest of the scripture, when you look at the rest of the story of Joseph, as we play this out over the next couple of months, that never seems to ring true to me. Joseph's not playing, running a game here, and he's not trying to abuse his brothers. He, he's trying to get them to, to see the world the way God sees the world. And so he says to them, where do you come from? And they say in verse 9, Joseph sa they say to him, uh, where are we in verse 9? Uh, Joseph remembered the dreams he's spoken to them. Uh, he says, oh, you are spies. And they say, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. The world dominated by our sin is a world that has a narrow focus that can't get past the worldly concerns that we are surrounded by. We see a world that is dominated by earthly concerns. And that's exactly what these men do here. Joseph says, where are you from? Now, what would be the right answer to this? Picture this. Now, we don't think along these lines, so you have to push yourself to understand the right answer. The answer to this question is, we are the great-grandsons of the man who inherited the promise of God that through the blessing that God was going to give him, the whole world is going to be blessed. We are the inheritors of that promise. Over above everything else, I stand before you as a man. I'm in desperate need of food. I'm in desperate need of all these kind of things, but I am one of 10 brothers, 12 brothers, who have inherited the promise of God. I, above all else, stand before you as a man of God. But instead, they say, no, we're, we're just 10, 10 sons, 10 of 12 sons, who live 100 miles north of here, and we're desperate need of food. Now, let me clarify something so that we don't get too far off track. Earthly concerns are important. God recognizes them. In the midst of the Lord's Prayer, a wonderful spot, we're supposed to say, Lord, give us our daily bread. We recognize the need for our daily bread. God recognizes the need for our daily bread. And so he speaks to us over and over again in the scriptures that remind us that our daily substance, God created us as physical human beings, that's an important part of our life. We're not supposed to ignore that but we're supposed to see it within the context of the vision God gives as a whole for who you are. You, above all else, are a child of God. 
above everything else. You have been a person, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been united with Jesus Christ. You are a Christian. You stand, you see the world, and that's the point here. God is inviting you to see the world with the perspective that he has, that when he looks at you first and foremost, he doesn't see you as a man who needs the emotional support that you do, as a family support that you do, as the jobs that we do, as a physical sport. He knows all that. He's concerned about all that. But he sees you as a member of his kingdom. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Above all else, he sees you that way, and he invites you to see yourself that way. But sin forces us to picture the world simply as one that is dominated by our earthly concerns. And so Joseph takes the brothers and he slaps them into prison for a while. And then after a while, he pulls them out and says, Hey, look, if you're really not spies, if you haven't come to see the nakedness of the land, that is, if you haven't come to see the vulnerability of the land that is here, and also the bounty, the blessing that is here, that both of those ideas are caught up in this idea that uh, Joseph accuses them of. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. You've come to see how vulnerable we are, but also the great bounty that is here so that you can come and steal from it. So he puts them in prison for three days, and he says, look, I, I fear God, and so I'm going to keep one of your members, Simeon, but the rest of you go home, and, and I will release Simeon to you once you bring your younger brother back here. Once you, now, again, what is in Joseph's mind? Why does he want to see his younger brother? Now, he's his younger brother. So, of course, he wants to see him for that. You know, we come up with all the familial reasons, which are all good reasons for this. But ultimately, Joseph is the model of God's salvation. He is the one by which the world will be saved, where the Israelite people, the sons of Jacob, will be saved. And so he can't work to save the ten and leave the youngest brother up in Canaan land to die and so Joseph shapes things in such a way as to ensure that eventually the entire people of God will be saved by the work of the Lord. It is a beautiful picture here of what our God does. So he sends is Simeon and he says, no, Simeon is going to be here. And then we look in verse 21 for how the brothers respond to this. Verse 21, then they say to one another, in truth, now, this is a brother speaking to one another. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in which we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we would not listen. Where do you come from? They come from a world because of the narrowness of their sin. They come from a world which is surrounded, which is dominated by guilt. How do they think of themselves? Now they realize that they're in big trouble and this mean, big Pharaoh dude is being upset with them and stuff. And how do they handle that? What do they think? They say, well, this is our just desserts. This is what we get for treating that Joseph. Remember Joseph, you know, all those years ago we treated him so badly. Well, now this is what we get. We are dominated by our sin, by our, our guilt. Now, don't miss this as well. Just like our earthly concerns, guilt is a good thing for the role in which it serves. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit himself is the one who brings conviction into our lives. He's the one that gives rise to those thoughts of, man, I shouldn't have done that. But that 
guilt, that conviction is intended to drive us, to lead us towards Jesus Christ. It is intended to bring repentance into our lives where we sit there and say, I have recognized what I have done. I own it and now I repent so that I might believe that I confess my sin so that I might experience the blessings that God has given to us. Instead, what we see here is all these years later, these brothers are still overcome by guilt. Certainly all of you know people like this. We've all seen folks that are so wrapped up, so overcome by the guilt of some action that they have done in the past that they can't move on, that all they talk about, that they see everything through the prism of that guilt. And God, the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, use our guilt to give us a different picture so that we might see the beauty and the grace of our redemption in Jesus Christ. But they can't see past the world that is dominated by guilt. And as you continue on in verse 22, then Reuben speaks up. Reuben is the oldest brother here. Then Reuben said to them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So here comes a reckoning for his blood. So Reuben now turns against his other brothers because once again, that is characteristic of the narrowness that sin brings into our field of vision. We don't see the world the way God sees the world, where he looks across at us and he sees us all as his wonderful, loving creation and those who have been called by his name as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord sees. That's what he invites us to see. But instead, what we see here is, and remember what happens when uh, God says to Adam, what did you do? You know, did you, did you eat of the apple that you weren't supposed to eat of? What's Adam's response? Well, the woman... She's the one that made me do it, okay? Immediately, they turn against each other, the hostility that is there. And immediately here, we see Reuben turning against his brothers. By the way, you go back in the text and you read about Reuben's trying to save Joseph. I don't know that it flies necessarily. I don't think Reuben is necessarily being the angel of mercy that he tries to portray himself here as. Instead, Reuben turns against everybody else because our sin closes our sight in and we can't see anything but our own perspective, our own needs, and that causes us to turn against one another. Exactly the opposite picture that God desires for us to have. So we see a world only dominated by guilt. In addition to that, so Joseph sends along the brothers, sends them home, he sends them with grain because again, there's folks that are starving up there. So he sends them with grain Packed in the bag. So you've got the ten brothers, and they've all got wives, and they've all got children, and they've got mom or dad. Mom's passed away at this point, but they've got dad, and they've got their slaves in their community. So you are talking perhaps about almost a thousand people, somewhere between 300, 400, up to maybe a thousand people that are cared for by these ten brothers. So they're carrying a lot of grain back. And they go down there with every intention to buy it. So they have all this money. And yet what happens is that Joseph says, stick the money back in their sacks. Now again, why does Joseph do that? We're not told the motive. But it seems clear to me, these are his brothers. He cares for them. He's being gracious with them. 
He gives them grace. Hey, you came down here to buy all this food, but look at this. I'm going to give it to you for free. So he returns their money. And yet, how do they look at this? Look at verse 28. They can't see it. At this, their hearts failed them. Because if you've lived in this world, if you've lived in a world that is dominated by sin, if your vision has been narrowed by your own sin so much so, you know that so often we can't even see the grace of God. What is more characteristic of the kingdom of our Lord than that it is a grace-filled community, that grace overflows everything. And yet how many of you come each and every week to this service and walk away without sensing the grace from one another? Why is that? Why don't I walk home overwhelmed with the sense that you guys are all gracious towards me? Because my sin narrows my vision so much that I don't even see your grace. We don't even see the grace that we have against one another. And what's the worst possible thing? Finally, we turn and we blame God. Notice that that's what the brothers say. What is this that God has done for us? Okay, so I jump off the roof and I break my arm. Then what do I do? I blame God. God, why didn't you break my arm? Because you jumped off a roof. These people can't see the grace of God, and then they turn and they blame him. Now, if we're not supposed to live in a world that is dominated by earthly concerns, if we're not supposed to live in a world where there's hostility against one another, if we're not supposed to live in a world where we blame God for the very grace that he pours out upon us, what do we do? You remember the scene? This dates me a little bit, so sorry for all you younger folks. Uh, in um, Dances with Wolves, where Kevin Costner, somebody giggle, where Kevin Costner is looking at a buffalo through his telescope, and one of the Native Americans is standing there looking at that, and he hands the telescope over to the Native American, and the Native American puts it up to their eye and freaks out because the buffalo is right there. You know, they're looking at a buffalo through the, but they, it, everything is, oh, and, he got, and the Native American freaks out a little bit. After a while, you see him able to use the telescope. You know why? Because he has realized that what he is seeing is not the way things really are. We must, as a people of God, we must, as a people of God, recognize the power of sin in our lives, that it shapes us, that it shrinks us, that we only see the world, that, that we only see things from a sin-driven, selfish perspective. We have to realize when we're looking through, that we're looking through the telescope and it's distorting reality so that we have to convince ourselves. Now, there's more things to do, but absolutely one of the key ones is to sit there and recognize what sin is doing in your life, that it is shrinking your vision so that you say to yourself, no, I am going to train myself. I am going to learn to see the world as it really is. And how do you do that? That's the picture that the scriptures paint for us. Every single day, every day, you have to expose yourself to the scriptures 
so that you learn what the world really is like. Because sin is narrowing your vision. And God is inviting you to see the world in an entirely different way. Where do you come from? You are a child of God. You are a Christian. And you live in a world that is dominated by His grace. You live in a world that is dominated by His presence. You live in a world that is dominated by His love. That's the reality of the world around you, seen from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we thank you again for the mercy that you give to us in Jesus Christ, how you have shown us your love, how you have taken us from people that are distorted, warped by our sin, and that you have freed us from that, for as we have sung earlier, we are free indeed in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray for the grace to embrace that reality when it is not what we see with our eyes, it's not what we see or experience in our lives, yet nevertheless we know that that is what is true. And we know that is the case through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, who taught us to pray together saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever.